Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. On a recent weekday, our show got a look inside the Missouri Botanical Gardens Bayer Center. It's a research facility, one that holds millions of plant specimens from around the globe. Inside this nondescript building in South St. Louis, there's a room laid out like the wing of a research library with large movable shelves. They hold plant samples, each carefully packaged, labeled, and flattened between sheets of newspaper. This is the natural environment of Charlotte Taylor. Charlotte is a special kind of scientist, a taxonomist. Her job is to look at these samples and to identify them. If the plant is newly discovered, she gets to name it. It may sound simple, but taxonomy is a very specialized field, and in that community of scientists, Charlotte Taylor is something of a rock star. She's been doing this work for 41 years. In that time, she's named about 500 new species of plants. That's no small contribution. When it comes to naming plants, Charlotte Taylor holds the distinction of being the single most prolific female botanist in the field today. As impressive as that is, Charlotte didn't know she'd attained that distinction until quite recently. But it's an achievement worth celebrating and sharing. So here to talk about the world of plants and what it means to be the world's top female namer of flora, I'm joined by Missouri Botanical Garden taxonomist Charlotte Taylor. Charlotte, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Hi, thanks for having me. So what does it mean to be a taxonomist? (laughs) Uh, It's a very small and specialized part of the scientific world that I do. We try to make sense of what are all the organisms around us and provide a name and a scientific framework that is a reference so other people can find that species and all the information about it. Mm -hmm. When someone studies a plant for agriculture or medicine or ecology, all the information is indexed under that scientific name. So I provide those. Mm -hmm. Are there general questions or basic questions that you are trying to answer in your work? And is there something sleuthy about it? Well, the general question is, I think of myself, I look at the small and the big. The general question is, what is all this life around us? What are we looking at? All the plants and animals, plants in my case. I look at a tiny little group of it, and I try to figure out what each species or organism in it is. And they don't really care what we call them. So this is imposing you know, a scientific framework onto stuff that scientists can use. And so, yeah, there's, there's figuring out, you have to understand what the plant is doing and who the plant is mm-hmm. before you can name it. And why does science need names? Well, in order to study something, you have to know what it is. You can't just conserve all the plants in the world. You can't say, well, that one's rare, and people go, what plant? You have to have a reference point, and we do this with documentation and careful delimitation of information so that um, people can find it. I basically write reference books. Okay. I do. Hey, we need reference books. How often do you use a dictionary? Well, we do use one at home, in fact. (laughs) So I write the reference books, and I'm constantly updating the reference books as new discoveries are made. Mm -hmm. No. 
lay people typically will use the term naming, as I have naming plants. But in taxonomy, what you do is technically called describing. What is the difference there? Naming a plant, um, they do that, for example, in agriculture. They'll name, a tra- they'll name a strain of corn or something. What I do is more involved in that. I try to find all the information about it, where it grows, the ecology, if possible, the pollinators and things, and all of the morphological characters, and I tie it all to a physical specimen. Mm-hmm. This is science. We need to be repeatable and falsifiable, so you have to have documentation. Mm-hmm. And so that's what all those specimens are in the herbarium, is they're all documentation for all of the science we've published. Mm-hmm. And anyone can come back and go and look at it and go, and they do, and they're like, well, you were wrong, but at least we have a specimen to look at. And you mentioned morphological characteristics. Mm-hmm. What is that, and where does that come into play uh, for those who are looking at your reference materials about plants? We have a very specialized, precise language for it, but basically you describe the leaves, you describe the flowers and the fruits, and you do it the same way that you would go to the nursery and look and go, well, I like this rose better than that rose. Mm -hmm. You're looking at the color of the flowers and the type of the leaves and how big the flower is and how many flowers. And so we're describing all of those details in a very, very formal but international language. Mm Now, when folks visit the botanical garden, the flowers and plants are, they're all out front and they're blooming. But where you work, the plants come in a a different shape, form, place. How are they presented to you and where do they come from? Well, the plants that come to me are flat and dead. (laughs) And that's okay because the plant is not like an animal. When you cut a piece of a plant, I mean, you've probably pressed flowers in a book, sure, yeah. and they last forever. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. Uh, but we take pieces of native plants, and if they're carefully preserved, they last for a long time. We have specimens from, we have one specimen from the 1600s because it's been taken care of. So we preserve them, and we keep them in a facility that's dry and it's cool to keep insects out of it. Mm-hmm. And what I get is I get a piece of plant that was collected from Madagascar or South America or Southern Missouri, and it was put between newspaper, and it was dried, really, really, really dry. And then it becomes the same texture as the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And And who is it, I'm sorry, who is it that's collecting the samples? um, People all over the world that are working in biodiversity, primarily, Uh, People in South America, we have teams in Peru, big teams in Peru and Madagascar. And one of the things they're doing is exploring new areas and trying to figure out where to put parks and where to preserve and what areas are worth preserving. Mm -hmm. Um, The state of Missouri has people doing that in Missouri, looking for native flora and important flora and important plant areas. We've talked to some of those folks on the show, too. Well, and speaking of those uh, others and sort of the the world in which you work. You are one of about 60 taxonomists working at the Missouri Botanical Garden, but you have that special distinction among them. In a study published last year, a group of researchers from England, including the Royal Botanic Gardens, went through the history of taxonomy and botany. They cataloged the women who contributed to those fields, and lo, (laughs) they found you. Charlotte, you're the most prolific living female taxonomist for plants. Please say living. Yes, living. Very much (laughs) alive and animated. Because there were some amazing women ahead Mm -hmm. of me. 
So I understand that you were not aware of that until those researchers contacted you. I mean, what was it like to get that news? <laughs> I thought it was a goof. I checked the email addresses to see who was sending me because okay. <laughs> I thought, why would anyone even calculate this? <laughs> you know, and I thought it was just an odd thing. And but then I know a couple of the women who were on it. So mm -hmm. I just was I was just like flabbergasted. Yeah. I mean, what do you do with news like this? It's so odd. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did we you do with well, that news? We generally don't have rankings in our field. Mm. The rankings are number of publications. You know, rankings, we do have like people competing how many specimens you've collected, how many countries you've gone to. Nobody counts species. Yeah. So it was kind of funny. Was it also surprising? I mean, You've been doing yes. this for a long time. Yes. Yeah. It was actually very exciting, very satisfying, and very surprising because I simply never thought about it. And I'll be honest, I looked at it and I thought, well, yeah, I have a lot of species. I work at the Missouri Botanical Garden. This is what we do. This right. is who we are. <laughs> We're the big time. Of course I have a lot of species. And I may be female, but I hold my own. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, and women are underrepresented in botany and taxonomy. Mm -hmm. Charlotte, why is that the case? And is that changing at all? You know, we had a discussion of that just this morning. And nobody's really sure um, of the factors for that. It's a good question. Some of it is who enters the field. I suspect personally, some of it is that botany has always been less well paid than a lot of other fields in um, science. And so if you're a woman and you're super good, mm -hmm. why would you go in this? Yeah. Unless you just had a passion for it, which is what we have. So the, the Post-Dispatch mentioned something that really blew me away. And that is that every year about 2,000 new plant species are identified in the world. And that the Missouri Botanical Garden accounts for 200 of mm -hmm. these. And Charlotte, last year, you named 17 mm -hmm. new species. So between you and the Missouri Botanical Garden, seems like there's a lot of the world's knowledge about mm -hmm. plants that connects to people and work right here in St. Louis. I mean, how is it that you and the garden have gotten so productive? Well, we're, we take it seriously. The garden puts a lot of resources and energy into it. We're over 150 years old, so we've built up a lot of resources, a lot of talent, a lot of history. And the administration over the last decades has aimed our research facilities in this direction. Mm -hmm. It's institutional support and prioritization. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a very, very strong... We started with tropical floras back in the 20s when... It wasn't a big thing for American institutions, but we started in Panama because there was a Panama Canal. Mm -hmm. And from there, we've just grown and grown and grown. And instead of going into biotech or stuff, this is what we've done. And the garden has really facilitated and supported us. I'm talking with Charlotte Taylor, a renowned taxonomist at the Missouri Botanical Garden and who's named more plants than any living woman. Charlotte is talking with us about her work, the plants she's named, and insights from her 40-plus year career in botany. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.
Welcome back. Let's return to our conversation with the Missouri Botanical Garden's Charlotte Taylor. Charlotte has spent more than 40 years as a scientist in the fields of botany and taxonomy. She spends her days identifying and naming new plant species. So was it partly the reputation of Missouri Botanical Garden that brought you to it? (laughs) Well, I'll be honest. I married a guy on staff. (laughs) But also, I was so happy to get hired. This is, I, although I had a good job before. I was a professor. I was in the field all the time. I was at the University of Puerto Rico. It was great. Mm-hmm. We went to the beach all the time. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And so I was really, really thrilled to be here. It changed the direction of what I do from field ecology to the taxonomic work. Mm-hmm. But I was trained in that as well. Yeah. So you spent a lot of time in the field collecting samples. What was that like, Charlotte? And what is a, a good sample? Mama, I love the field. My field time is exciting. It's adventuring. It's exploring. You walk down a road and you never know what you're going to see or where you're going to go. And I like the unexpected. Mm-hmm. So what you do is, for what I'm doing, I find the plants in my particular group and I take pieces of the ones that are in a given locality. So I know what grows together. And I take a piece of every one of them that I can find, and then I take them back and figure them out in the lab. Mm -hmm. Because I need the books, and because honestly, for my plants, pretty much where they grow, it's always raining. So you really don't want to stop and spend a lot of time trying to examine stuff. So from the time you were out to the time that you actually come up with the name, how long does that process take? Uh, it can take, it usually from discovering something is new to getting around to publishing it if it's a priority. And that includes writing a manuscript, sending it to a journal, having it reviewed and edited. That's usually about two years. But I mm. have things in my cases I'm pulling out now that have been there for 25 years. Okay, wow. So your work, it has focused on the Rubiaceae family of plants. And you mentioned Puerto Rico. I mean, tell us a bit about this plant family and and where it is found. This plant family is found all over the world. If you know bedstraw, some people may, or buttonbush here in in Missouri, it's primarily tropical. It's one of the largest families in terms of species numbers, but they're primarily found in tropical regions. Um, And it's all over the world. It's well represented, particularly in Africa, Asia, the Pacific Islands, and South America and Central Mm -hmm. America. So... Everywhere. It doesn't include a lot of economic species, so most people have probably never really heard of it. It doesn't oh. have a lot of food plants. Okay. It has a lot of, of what we call alkaloid chemics, mm-hmm. chemicals. Um, gardenia. What? Gardenia is one of mine. Ah, uh, okay. So if you have a gardenia plant, they look a lot like that. Mm-hmm. They're small plants to very large trees. Uh-huh. And how is it that this plant family became such a focus of your career? I was afraid you were going to ask, how did it diversify? That's the question we're working on. Um, it became the focus because my professor suggested it for my doctoral project. Mm-hmm. I worked on another group first, mm-hmm. and I just fell in love with it. I'm not in, I can't say I'm in the field because of anything other than passion. Mm-hmm. I just love what I do. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love with this plant group, and it has just provided more and more and more and more scientific questions and ways to go and research projects and new avenues of things to explore than anyone ever imagined. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite species within the Rubiaceae family? And 
Can you paint a, a like a sensory picture of it? Well, I don't know that I have a favorite species because they're all my children and I love them all equally. <laughs> <laughs> I can't pick one. Sure. <laughs> um, let me think. Well, a quinine tree, those are a native in the Andes in South America. They are middle-sized trees like a maple tree. <laughs> they have leaves probably the size of your hand. Okay. That, and they have flowers in sprays. They look kind of like, I'm not even sure what to say. But they have flowers and sprays of about three dozen, and the flowers are about two inches long, and they're bright pink, and the hummingbirds visit them. Oh, okay. So attractive. <laughs> oh, they're beautiful. Yeah. Oh, my plants are beautiful. <laughs> all of them are animal-pollinated, so they all have pretty flowers mm-hmm. to attract moths and butterflies and hummingbirds. Mm-hmm. And you said that you're studying how Rubiaceae diversifies. What does that mean? Well, we like to—I guess the question is, why are there so many species? And no one knows. But we're trying to figure it out. But that will be something for generations after me. I was originally going to study that, but um, I'm still bogged down, or I'm still at the point of just figuring out the species. I can't, I'm not at a point to analyze them. I've got some wonderful, wonderful young collaborators who are going to work on the next phase of this will involve genetic information mm-hmm. and stuff. So I'm working with several, uh, most of them are women, actually. I'm working with a lab in Louisiana. They're very great, Mm -hmm. and they're working, and a guy in San Francisco. Okay. So they'll take the next step, but I'm doing the naming of the species. Mm -hmm. And on that naming, I mean, how do you decide on a particular name? Is um, Is there some chance involved? Oh, no, it's up to me. I decide the name. Okay. We have a code. This is really... We have a code of, of nomenclature. It's, it's like a legal document. It's a set of rules on how to do it. It's intended to be international, so anyone in the world can follow the rules and publish a name that conforms with the rules. But one of the articles says um, the name of a species, a species name is arbitrary. It can be anything you want it to be. Mm-hmm. What we do is we pick something that's a bit mnemonic, so it gives you a clue to the plant itself. Like if it has red flowers, you'd okay. say something like red flowered. Mm-hmm. Or if it has an unusual form of fruit, you'd mm-hmm. make a reference so that when you're looking at them, you go, oh, that must be it. It's, um, but it's, it's pretty random, and people name species for all sorts of different things. It's, um, you know, they've even, that we were... <laughs> There's some kind of scandalous ones. They've named them for celebrities in hopes of getting money from the celebrities, which they did, which oh, they did. Okay. Or the celebrities have given them money and in return. But mainly we name them for attributes of the plant, but also for people when they are other botanists. Okay. Because when you're a botanist, this is all you're getting. Right. I mean, I'm right here. This is the most recognition I'm getting. Okay. And having a species name for you is just awesome. Yeah. And, and we name them for field people, and we name them for, you know, our professors. Sure. And you've had plants named after you, Charlotte. But, I have. Um, what are some of these names? And, I mean, how, how does that feel? It's absolutely exciting, and it feels like the biggest honor in the world. And the names are kind of obscure. They're Latinized form of my name, Taylor I. Mm. And you'll never see the plant in a million years. So. Oh, okay. But, <laughs> but it's, it's exciting. There. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's recognition. Okay, we don't get trophies in botany. That's kind of like a trophy. Mm-hmm. And to the the point you had made about uh, celebrities, apparently there's a 
a scandal over naming one after Leonardo DiCaprio? <laughs> I don't think it's a scandal. Well, it's let's just say there's a, a differences of opinion. Okay. <laughs> it's not a scandal. Don't call it that. Okay, that's diplomatic. <laughs> yeah. No, what they did was they asked for some conservation money, and he gave them a large amount of conservation money. Mm, okay. I think it was an animal. Okay. And so they named it for him, which is totally fair. Yeah. And you had mentioned earlier that your husband was sort of your in to uh, the Missouri Botanical Garden, but he's also a taxonomist there. What is it like to be married to a a colleague? And like, do you name other things apart from plants? No, no, no. I well, I only work on plants. We talk shop at home a lot, mm-hmm. but we're both kind of deeply into this stuff. Yeah. You now do most of your work, Charlotte, from an office. What is it that has changed about how you go about describing a plant? Um, that's a good question. I think I don't have the field access. I have to draw on memories. But nowadays, there are a lot of photos. People post a lot of photos. Um, I miss seeing the plant in the field. I have way more time mm. to work because mm-hmm. I'm in the office. I'm not always traveling and doing things, um, airplane rides and meeting people and going, traveling three days to the field and three days back. So I, I think I get more work done, but I couldn't do this without all the years I spent looking at things out in the field, mm-hmm. alive. What are the steps for the, the process of going from a plant sample that is in the wild to your desk, Charlotte? Uh, okay. Someone has to collect it. Some botanist goes out. And the most important thing they do is they take the data of where they collected it, when they collected it, and they take usually pictures and they take observations of it. They dry it. And most of ours come in from other countries. So mm-hmm. they have to go through a packing and a permit shipping process. And they come to the our herbarium and they get unpacked and they get given, to, they get sorted out because everything comes in in large sets. And there are, what, 300 species, families in the world I don't even remember. Mm-hmm. And so those get sorted out. I only look at one. Okay. So they pull out the stuff for me and give it to me. And then it goes on to my desk. And then I try to identify it. And I use the reference books. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't get identified in the reference book, that means that either the reference book is out of date and I need to update it or we've never seen it before. Right. That's one for you. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> And pretty much every box that comes in from the tropical countries now, they're going into areas no one ever been in before. Mm-hmm. And so there's every box has one or two of those. Yeah. Now, there's a special place for plants that you've not uh, been able to s- describe. They're plant mysteries, um, essentially. What is it that makes it difficult or impossible in some cases to describe a particular plant? We don't have enough information. Plants are not like animals, okay? <clears throat> you don't have the complete plant. You have a flower or a fruit. They don't put them on at the same time. So you need both of them. Mm-hmm. And so we either have one or the other. We don't have enough information for it. Yeah. Do you have an example, perhaps, of how you solved one specific plant mystery? That one's kind of hard to explain because I basically go through the boxes I think what I have is a lot of memory. I spend a lot of time kind of working on memory, and I go mm. through plants all the time, so my memory is active. And so sometimes I just look and I go, well, here's the missing piece to that puzzle. But yeah. usually I have to get out the book and go through the identification guide till I get down to the point where it doesn't match, and then I go to my cabinet. Yeah. 
The mysteries are in my cabinet. My professor told me years ago, get yourself a cabinet and put all the, the stuff in the cabinet that you don't want other people to know about. And if you die, <laughs> they'll clean it out. But, um, but you know, don't you just put it in the cabinet. Right, just put right. it away. You don't have to account for it all. Mm-hmm. Is there something special about the cabinet itself? Yeah, it's in my office and it's locked. Okay. <laughs> now, some of the unidentified samples in the collection are years or even decades old. Um, what kind of evidence are you waiting for to clear up these cold cases? Usually I'm waiting for more specimens. I'm waiting for a specimen with flowers if I only have fruit. I'm waiting for a specimen with fruits if I only have flower. I can't really do a good job describing. You don't know for sure it's new unless you have the whole plant's life cycle. Mm-hmm. I was, um, I, I don't work on animals, but my understanding is that for insects, there's a problem if you just have a male insect right. or a female insect. Well, plants tend to have both of these, but I want to have the whole plant first. Mm-hmm. There's a part of the research center where plants are kept in these massive movable storage shelves. We talked about it in the introduction. Why is it important for the garden to keep these millions of specimens? I mean, it's a lot of space, um, other resources that are going into keeping them up. Why keep them? They're absolutely essential. They are more than our data. They are data points, but they're more than a data point for one study. Each one of these specimens, okay, they vary in quality, but each one of these specimens is the whole plant. It still has the chemistry in it. You can still find out if it had quinine. You can still find out if it grew on a heavy metals place and has heavy metals. There's some guys just came into town. They're doing isotope analysis now to figure out about the atmosphere Mm -hmm. when the plants grew. Um, You can do fine-scale anatomy on them. You can analyze for ecology. We spend a lot of these times, these specimens, confirming the identification, mapping them out, And then that map is what we use for conservation assessment, whether something is rare or endangered or not. We need to know all the points where it grows and the habitat where it grows. Mm -hmm. So then they superimpose that over Google Earth and habitat maps. So we need every one of those things for different analyses. Mm -hmm. Charlotte, you've been in this field for a long time. You have all this knowledge, institutional knowledge as well. What is your hope for the future of taxonomy? My hope for the future of taxonomy is what's happening now. There's more support going into it, at least here at the garden. One of the things that is a little hard to see from here to me is that taxonomy has moved around the world. We used to be doing a lot of taxonomy here in North America for the last hundred years. We've been figuring out what grows here. Well, we kind of have a handle on that now, mm-hmm. but they're doing that now in Mexico, and they're, doing, they're starting to figure that out in South America. So there's a lot of taxonomists down there, and my favorite part, and my hope, they're all young. They're mm-hmm. enthusiastic. They're young. They're using new techniques, but old techniques, and they're working in teams. We work in teams more than we ever did, yeah. and my hope is that we'll just keep doing, understanding that biodiversity is important and that we need to keep preserving it and documenting it. Mm-hmm. And as we wrap here, you talked about young taxonomists, and perhaps there are women, uh, young women, girls, who are thinking about what you've just described because they have never really heard about it before. Can you talk about one particular instance in which uh, 
you came to a discovery of something and it really just made you so glad to be doing this work? Well, I love discovering new places and I love discovering new plants. And I have more than once walked out in the field and found something that I absolutely knew science had never seen before. And that is just, it takes the study. You have to know your group, but it's absolutely awesome to know you're the first person to ever see a living organism that's been there for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. It, um, it's extremely exciting. I'm, for me, it's adventure. And it's an adventure of both adventuring around the world and looking at new places. And it's an adventure of ideas. If you like ideas, science is full of new ideas and new ways of looking at things. Um, I basically have to change my view on things every couple of years as new data comes out. And some people find that discouraging, but I find it intensely exciting. Charlotte, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. This episode was produced by Danny Wissentowski. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.